0: Well, so glad you're joining uh, me for episode seven of our Conversations uh, for Change series. And I am so, so excited uh, to share a friend and a mentor with you. I'm joined today uh, by Reverend Michael Carrion. And uh, this is not just a great pastor in the city of New York, but a pioneer. Um, he's a a voice uh, in my life and in our city that I have the greatest respect for. And uh, uh, leading in the in the Bronx, but really leading nationally in many ways, I think, and uh, having an impact on uh, Liberty Church and many other churches with um, your leadership. Uh, Michael, I am so grateful that you've made the time for this
1: conversation today. Oh, well, Paul, thank you. It's an honor. Uh, I love what you and your wife have done Uh, Over the last decade in New York, you are planting. Uh, We see Liberty Church as a a healthy missional gospel movement. Uh, And you guys are not just about it. I see you guys on the street uh, supporting the least of these, uh, being found faithful uh, in your context. And we're grateful to partner with you. And we're grateful to be in the same global city trying to be found faithful. And the master's vineyard so thank you for this opportunity to speak and to hang out with you today. oh it's
0: great we are absolutely better together and i am i am better for having personally having you in my life uh <laughs> you are you're a hero and so um actually what would be probably helpful to start with is maybe because you know I, I i know um some of your ministry and your work both um in a church context you know what you're doing uh in the bronx to to serve um really many of the marginalized in our city you know you're representing the body of Christ and the church, or even even in at the highest levels uh, of government in our city, and uh, and having an impact in church planning through city to city. Could you just give us a little bit of the the
1: the story? Sure. Well, sure. Well, I planted a Promised Land Covenant Church uh, seventeen years ago, and we consequently planted seven churches out of the South Bronx. Promised Land started in an adjudicated parish church context. Uh, a movement started by the late David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson started Times Square Church. Another ministry he started, which is world-known and renowned, is Teen Challenge Training Center. I actually went to Teen Challenge, and that's how I wound up working in ministry. Um, I, was, I was caught up in uh, a life of addiction and crime and, and broken as a teenager, and I had a friend that just preached the gospel, took me to Teen Challenge, changed my life, uh, and uh, the Holy Spirit arrested me, and that was it. I found out when I was in Pennsylvania on God's Mountain. They had me uh, cover a class one day. One of the pastors uh, was teaching the Book of Colossians. His wife was giving birth, uh, Pastor Jerome, and he says, Mike, I need you to cover this class. And I'm like, what do you mean? I, mean, I was a librarian. You know, I couldn't. I was like, wait a minute. No, no, I did But he says, Mike, you took the class. Just, just answer the questions. I got to go. My wife's giving birth. It was in that class that I found out that I had a call to uh, public ministry uh, because the students, 75 uh, students, were like, Pastor Mike. I was like, I don't know. I'm not a pastor. I'm a student just like you. And uh, it's where I started to really pray differently. Anyway, I come home, graduate. That's almost 30 years ago, by the way. Uh, We planted uh, promised land out of Harvest Fields Community Church in the uh, Northeast Bronx. And we planted in the South Bronx out of Urban Youth Alliance, right across the street from the Horizon Detention Center, and um, which is the juvenile detention center in the South Bronx. And we, um, we kept seeing that our kids kept getting locked up from a little basketball court. And we wanted to try to address that issue. And so we were servicing all these kids that were coming home, and we would send them out to one of the 45 churches we were partnering with. And what happened was that the churches would send them back to us. And as they were sending them back to us, we were like, well, you know, you're the church. Are you not gonna deal with these kids and these teenagers? But they were gangbangers, they were rough, they were. And so they said, well, Pastor Mike, why can't this be our church? And I was like, no, we're not a church. We're a pirate church. We'll help you with case management. We'll help you get a job. We'll help you with an assessment. We'll help you with a mentor, but we don't do, you know. And uh, I got so convicted that night and I was home and I was talking to my wife, Elizabeth, and she was cooking. And I said, you know, this young man told me this. And as she's like stirring the beans or something like that, she says, well obviously the Lord's calling you to plant a church. And she just kept on stirring her beans. And I stood there and I said, oh my God, is that what's happening? And so the next day I went to the board and we started a chapel service. That chapel service outgrew into the foyer. It outgrew from the foyer into a community center, from a community center into a building. And then from that building we planted six other churches. Then we started planting charter schools, charter schools because we saw that the, the children kept flipping into incarceration. How do you sever that pipeline? We planted the Bronx Academy of Promise Charter School. It's, a, it's a, in the top 6% performance in the South Bronx out of the state. So, and we just got approved for our second school. So that'll be another 700 students.
0: Congratulations.
1: A block away from, uh, so it'll be BOP1 and Bronx Academy of Promise 1 her Bronx Academy of Promise too, so anyway, you know to God be the glory. God started a missional movement out of a very, very, um, very, very rough neighborhood and community, and then as things would have it, I wound up uh, working with the city for many years, and then gravitating toward uh, uh, National uh, Latino Evangelical Coalition. I served on the board of bishops in that context, which is the Spanish arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. And it was in that context where I met somebody from city to city, and then I was recruited to be the vice president of church planting and leadership development. So I function as a general overseer and bishop over all of our churches, superintendent of the school, but my daytime ministry is vice president of city to city church planting New York project. So, and in that context, I get to meet people like Bishop Paul Andrews and his (laughs) wife, and all the great pastors that you guys are launching uh, across the five boroughs so, yeah. and the most important thing though I'm married uh, for 31 years to my wife Elizabeth Come on. we have five children adults all my kids are adults three grandchildren and three pit bulls because I'm still from the South Bronx so I got to have a <laughs> security you are
0: not a grandfather T-
1: How did- I, I am a grandfather what? yeah man. yeah I have a grandfather my oldest <laughs> grandchild is six Isabel is six and then Maya is four, and then DJ is two. So yeah.
0: I just found another way in which I look up to you. You are amazing. Um,
1: God has been merciful.
0: <laughs> so yeah. let me, um, can you just for one minute, for people watching who maybe aren't as familiar with City to City, even in my church, but also other people might know what that movement is or where it came from, to oh, give a little sure, context.
1: absolutely. So in the United States or in Western Christianity, there are several apologists that have risen to the top within Christendom. One of them being Ravi Zacharias, who just unfortunately uh, graduated into eternity. Mm-hmm. But anyone who knows Ravi Zacharias also knows the other apologists in the reformed tradition, Dr. Timothy Keller. Dr. Timothy Keller is my boss and uh, founded Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City several decades ago. After 45 years of ministry, as a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, planted a successful church that then planted other campuses, and then left the church, retired from the pulpit to take on the board chair role and develop City to City. So City to City is the parachurch that was birthed out of the Presbyterian movement of Redeemer churches, uh, but it is not Presbyterian. It is transdenominational. Which means, in our context, um, you don't just find the reformed. You know, you go around, you hear the that the reformed of the low state of the Lord say so. No, you've got Pentecostal, Anglican, you've got Foursquare Assemblies of God. I'm with the, I'm a pietist with the Evangelical Covenant Church. The uh, we're high church ordered ministry, and so it is a mixing pot of different theological traditions that have been um, really brought together to plant healthy missional churches in global cities. So city to city, uh, discernedly uh, and prayerfully, recruits and trains church planters to plant the gospel in yeah. uh, communities within the, the five boroughs. And so that's what we do. So we partner with Liberty Church, when you have a couple that you see the hand of God has lifted them up in your in your um, missional community and you feel that they can be a another satellite Bishop Paul sends us that couple. We put them in through the whole uh, um, programming of residency, of, of incubator, of fellow, of apprentice. And uh, hopefully the outcome is a healthy liberty church somewhere planted in the five boroughs. So right. uh, by, God's, by God's grace, uh, we've been able to do that uh, and do it globally. Mm. So City to City is not just New York. It's in North America. It's in uh, Taipei. It's in Korea. I mean, it's it's all over the world and uh, Canada and uh, and to God be the glory. You know, Dr. Keller has has is a teaching pastor and priest and has um, has had a tremendous uh, journey, tremendous journey in, in in the last fifty years of ministry. So yeah. keep him in prayer.
0: Keep him yes. in prayer.
1: Uh, you know, the, the, we just made an announcement about his health. Uh, he needs prayer, but yeah.
0: his legacy, his legacy. One, yeah. of the, one of the, one of the great generals. Yeah. Yeah. He's we, a we are grateful yeah. to city to city. Cause right now, I mean, you talked about uh, training couples. And so for those who are watching this from Liberty church, you, you might know, uh, Pete and Sierra Vasquez who right now oh, yeah. uh, are being trained to plant a Liberty community in Washington Heights. I know, I know they've done presentations. I know they were a part oh, of yeah. uh, a March just recently.
1: That's right. So Sierra, in particular, let me give her some shine. Sierra, I'll say, was the best, well thought out, conceived church planting uh, uh, plan strategy that I've seen in a very long time. And the uh, Fellows program, she articulated, and uh, and her plan was 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 deep, theologically, missiologically, and then wide, uh, as multi ethnic, multi centric. And so it was to the glory of God. Uh, she did very, very, very well with um, with that with that project. But then to see her and and Pete in action at the protest uh, with multiple churches, multiple denominations and congregations at the prayerful march and act uh, protest in Washington Heights, she rocked it. She grabbed the mic. She dropped the, the spirit of God. Just I'm gonna tell you, I was up. My hands were up, brother. I was like, sister preach. Sister went in. Uh, she was prophetic. She was theologically sound. She represented uh, the movement. When I think of when I think of Liberty Church as a movement, I think Pete and Sierra, um, I think uh, crystallized that in this last weekend when we had that that march in the community, incarnational preaching the gospel, looking for the transformation and the reformation of their community and context. Powerful, mm-hmm. powerful. And uh, to see a husband and wife team gel together, they even had the little baby out there. They got a newborn. The baby's out there protesting. That was amazing. So, so it was good. It was it was, it was prayerful. The the police partnered with us. A lot of thought and effort
0: mm. went
1: into that march. And uh, it was good to see your folks at the at the helm, uh, Paul. You've done a good job with your leaders. You really have. Yeah, I celebrate that.
0: Well, we're grateful for you, and grateful to be doing it together. We really—I mean—I I know the phrase gets overused, but the truth is, we are better together.
1: Yeah, we yeah. are. We're, we are.
0: That's you know, it's the body of Christ. We each play different parts and different functions, and grateful to be standing with you in the in the city in times like these. You know, we were we were talking just when we were getting everything set up for the recording about coronavirus and uh, yeah. leading churches, movements, ministries through. Um, a pandemic right now um yeah i'd love to get some of your perspective you and i have stayed in in contact relationally through through this time through the shutdown Mm -hmm. and our churches and response to needs in our community but i'll ask a a deliberately ignorant question um which is because you know and it was evident to me even very early on when the pandemic hit if you looked at the numbers you would think that coronavirus was racist Um, because by the numbers, the impact of this virus on uh, people of color, um, I guess I, I could speak more accurately to what I know of the impact of it in our city and even in your ministry. Can you help? I mean, obviously, I know that is not scientifically a fact that it's a racist virus. I understand that, but I would like to use that as maybe a jump off for you to talk to us a little bit about your experiences these last few months in your life and ministry and then what, what that tells us about the divide that needs healing in our nation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, just two things. Let me just go back to something you mentioned. I really appreciate your heart and your ministry support with help, helping us reach the South Bronx. Mm-hmm. Uh, For those who don't know, uh, Liberty Church was instrumental in feeding hundreds of families uh, with promised land um, as we were dealing with the byproduct and the post-COVID economic tsunami, which is another issue of uh, observation when it comes to racism. Seems like all the Black and Browns have been unemployed and dislocated when you think of how the city's margin space uh, is categorized uh, throughout the region. But thank you for assisting and partnering with us. Um, And I'd love to show you the Promise Center video. I gave you a huge shout out uh, uh, as well as others, Uh, but it was a powerful video. Um, Ultimately, you're right. When you look at the numbers, especially within the New York region, you would assume, wait, this is a very biased disease. But what that speaks to is the bias oppressive systemic intentional marginalization of people of color within the construct of new york city so there's a tale of two cities is what i've learned going back the last four months there is the margin space church then there's the center church which center church meaning more manhattan majority culture more white financially affluent Uh, The churches that are majority culture in the city had an easier transition from going um, from first person to virtual because, number one, they had the budget. Number two, they had the resources. Number three, they had the capacity. Number four, they just had the means to turn around and just transition. I think they were much better prepared than the margin space. The margin space in the pockets of Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, even Staten Island. Staten Island is hood. If you go to parts of Staten Island, you would think you were in another another country back in the 70s that bad, uh, with addiction and crime and poverty, just of the likes you wouldn't even imagine in 2020. Um, I've been taken back at what I've seen in Staten Island and in parts of the South Bronx. Even in the backdrop of gentrification in these areas, you would think that gentrification, which is not always a good thing, and most times it's a bad thing because it further dislocates the poor It dislocates uh, uh, um, indigenous resource that historically has maintained communities now have got to be shimmied away into another construct or another space which just further hurts the vulnerable, further hurts the underserved and the restricted uh, from access that maybe majority culture holds coming back to the majority culture church, they were able to transition better. In our observation of over 200 plus churches in New York, the margin churches had several issues. Number one, they didn't have the economic uh, 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 solvency, right? So in the hood, in in the urban pocket, if a church does not meet, a church does not eat. So financially, number one, not being able to meet, causes a tension and a vacuum within the economics of operating that church uh, on the margins. Number two, 75% of most of those congregations instantly laid off because of people having to shut down their businesses because of the pandemic, trying to stop the spread of the disease. Most of these people that are still working, right, are are first responders. So you would be shocked to find out How many Browns and Asians and blacks are working as first responders in the triage and the ICUs facing death every day. And we've said that, that the people in the medical field have been the heroes, heroes in this process. Hasn't been Superman or Wonder Woman. It's been the nurse in the ICU. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the demographics of who lost the most jobs, it's usually the first uh, for entry level jobs, which are usually the poorest of the poor or the working poor. So economically, we see a systemic issue. Where's the access to higher paying jobs? Where's the equity in paying higher living wages that people can survive? That's a, Some would say that's a, a social issue and a political issue. If we have any theology grounding, that is a theological issue because the poor is where Jesus incarnates, first century. I'm not going to teach, but he incarnates into a social context, Nazareth, Galilee. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because it was a poor community. It was a mixed community. It was a margin community. And so when we look at the margin space, we've got to think Jesus. That's how we see it. So uh, the economics and losing jobs, the economics and not being able to gather. Then here comes another issue, the digital divide. Within communities, so it's it's nothing for a majority culture church to have a five thousand dollar soundboard, have a, a four thousand dollar iMac. That's just that's just doing church, not in the hood. They have smartphones, but they're not smart enough to use them to turn them into live streams or, or use them as platforms to further um, the me- the mission and the message of the gospel. I have been taken back at how many churches did not have the resource just to set up a Facebook page, a live stream to preach and to teach. They all had to learn Zoom the hard way. They all had to learn how to use uh, Google um, video the hard way. Uh, And and some of them who were not English speaking in the Bronx in particular, but there's over 152 languages within that district of uh, District 13, District 8. People didn't have the language in their mother tongue or English to navigate that. Uh, so the economics, the turnover, um, some churches were decimated by this. Let's talk about the casualties. I was coming back from Exponential and uh, this last Exponential and and um, and I noticed on the way back into New York coming from Orlando, everybody had a mask on and I just, I found that to be, you know, I'm used to seeing people with masks in the international airports, but not, not as not as many. And when I got home, the first call that I received was one uh, of our community, a child had succumbed to uh, COVID. Uh, a little 11-year-old tells his mother, my side hurts, Mommy, my side. Mommy takes the boy to the hospital. Two days later, he's dead. Jesus. He dies. I get the phone call, Rev, are you back from Florida? I just got back yesterday. So-and-so just died. I'm like, what? What? What do you mean he died? Oh, it's it's COVID. His lung literally liquefied. Literally. He tells the nurse, I'm ready to go home. I I don't feel any more pain. She leaves. She comes back. He's gone. Passed away. I'm on the phone with his mother. I don't have the words, Paul. I don't have the words. Number one, I can't hug her. I can't see her. She can't hug and see her baby now because they are now dealing with a disease that's, uh, you know, uh, undetermined. Uh, They don't have all the information. So now she can't even get her son's remains. Meanwhile, she has four other children. She's trying to tend to, and she's saying, Rev, Rev, Rev. Oh my God, why did this happen? And in most cases, people blame God when things like this happen. And, And you know, you know, at that time, You know, seminary graduate, post, I'm an adjunct professor in some institutions where I I lecture. I didn't have a text, Paul. I didn't have a theology to give this sister. I didn't have a word. All I could do was cry and say, God is with us. God is with you. He's not in pain. Please hold on. It's not God's fault. We didn't know this was going to happen, but God knew, and God is in this. God is in this. So all I could say, Paul, I get home. I'm done. I'm looking at the, I don't know if you do this, but I'm at the ceiling. I'm looking at the ceiling like I just can't, I can't sleep. I get up the next morning, seven o'clock. I'm on the phone. I get a phone call from uh, Mitchell Torres, Uh, my bishop, you know, for years. He says, Mike, are you good? I say, yeah, I'm good. He says, I'm sorry. I heard about the loss and the church. I got more bad news for you. Paul, this is the next day. This is not a week later, a month later. This is the next day. So we're talking April 5th, then April 6th, the morning of April 6th. One of the mothers of our church went into the hospital. Two days later, she's dead. COVID. Now the whole family has a disease. I start screaming. My wife could hear me outside. Outside the house. She's throwing out the garbage. And she hit me, no, no, no. I, I couldn't even believe it. I could not believe it. After that, I get another phone call. I mean, it was like reading the Book of Job. You know the Book of Job? First person walks in, second person walks in, you know, Job in the text, it, it doesn't say it in the text, but it's mine. Please, nobody else come in. My phone is ringing. I don't even want to pick it up. I don't want to pick it up. I'm like, let them leave a message. Because at this point, now I'm, I'm shaking, you know, and I, I've gone through a lot of schooling, Paul. I, I've been, I've sat under the think tank in University of Nebraska, Alliance Theological Seminary, Princeton Theological Seminary, Christian University, uh, North Park Theological Seminary. I've been in so many institutions, lecturing, supporting, writing, right? Nothing in any class or lecture that ever prepared me for the type of crisis that COVID ushered into our ministry and our community, right? After that, every other phone and text was, my father has it, my mother has it. We had one family where the mother passed away The father's not being intubated, the son has it, his wife has it and his kids have it. This thing was sweeping through families in our community and I can tell you why. And it looks racist because of the margin space. They put out the edict of social distancing. Social distancing is a privilege and not a norm in communities of color that are sitting on top of each other, living on top of each other. What do I mean? New York City housing projects can go up to 19 stories. In those 19-story buildings, you have two elevators for the entire building. You can have 650 units. Those 650 units in that building can have up to 4,000 people just in one building. 4,000 men, women, and children using only two elevators, using only two staircases. There's no social distancing. Everybody's touching everything, sneezing on everything, breathing on everything. When you get in the elevator, coming home from work or school, elevators backed out. You're on top of each other. There's no social distancing, and so I said, I've been privileged. I was appointed to the clergy uh, council for Mayor De Blasio, who has done so much. People have critiques about everything, but I've seen this man do the work to try to put these things straight, uh, to address this uh, him and Cuomo. I'm just, I've never been so proud of new york city governor uh you know g- uh, governor and mayor uh, efforts as i have over the last six months um and so anyway grateful to be in that in that context but i asked the mayor directly what, what are we doing about this <laughs> directly not not directly we we're in a conversation and he says well we're, we're we are trying our best to sanitize as much as we can but the reality is People leave their houses, they go to work, they go outside, they go to the bodega, and you just, this, this disease is uncontrollable, and it's indiscriminate, because the first narrative that came out said that, oh, watch the senior citizens with upper respiratory issues. The first casualty in my context wasn't a senior citizen, it was a child. Then it was a senior citizen, then it was a 20-year-old young adult who's walking, passes out, dies, right, COVID. They said it's a pulmonary issue. It's a pulmonary-focused disease. No. This thing targets the major organs. People, they say, it's tied to aneurysms now. You know? I mean, this this thing is attacking. Uh, it, it's, it's mutating. The longer it's in us, among us, it's getting stronger. Uh, you see this in the hybrid Kawasaki uh, pandemic. Another pandemic within a pandemic. Hitting uh, so many young children. And it's unfortunate because... All those kids that, that were announced that had Kawasaki hybrid disease, they still have it. You don't hear about it on the media, but that didn't just go away. Those kids and those families are still suffering. We just saw a spike now the other day, 900 uh, uh, confirmations of COVID uh, in New York that was announced, and then they said we want to be careful with, with opening up uh, too quickly. Uh, we may rethink the uh, restaurants gathering. I believe we're moving up a little bit too fast. At the end of the day, Paul, I saw 15 people from my church die. 15 people from my congregation passed away. The Washington Post put out an article on May 5th. Uh, Sarah Pulliam Bailey, a tremendous journalist, met with me, came to our churches. You know, uh, you can feel free to Google it. Anybody from Liberty can Google it. Just put in Bronx pastor thirty. Just put a Bronx pastor COVID. It'll come up on Google. Um, the, 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 the The article brought national attention to the reality of the disproportionate uh, suffering of the people of color uh, in global cities, not just in New York. You see the same thing in Chicago. Chicago African Americans in the 60s and 70 percent. Latinos are a little lower. In New York City, the Latinos had the highest loss, casualty. Uh, and it's because of how we're living. Our margin space is dense. Our margin space is dense. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's just not, for, it's not created to give distance or space from each other. You know, there's no way you're not going to bump into somebody. You compound that with these other oppressive systemic realities that the communities that have the most and the highest casualties are also the most underserved medically, have the unhealthiest food sources, have more methadone clinics, more um, uh, liquor stores, more poverty, the weakest economic uh, communities or or boards or chairs, uh, what do you call it? Economic Economic Chambers of Commerce are in these communities, which means they have the least businesses, which means it reflects the least revenue, which means that it reflects a reality of poverty that's not even on the, on the charts. Let me give you an example. In the district of Mott Haven, we service what's called the TANF population. And the TANF population uh, as a category uh, by the city of New York that says, here goes the poverty level. Listen to this. Here goes the poverty level, and the people that live in this section of the Bronx are 200% below the poverty level. Let me say that again, just in case you didn't get that math. Here goes the poverty level, Paul, and the people that we serve are 200% below the poverty level. A person of public assistance today makes maybe maybe $11,000 a year with one child on their caseload. Maybe that so now you talk about and look at the other issues. Now you talk about why COVID looks racist Well, it's not that COVID is racist Is that the systems that we've put in place that create the space and distance between center and margin? work against the margin and That's not a socio-political issue. That is a missiological theological issue and the church needs to be concerned on what's happening on the margins because when a pandemic comes, a plague comes, a social ill comes, it hits and destroys the margins because the margins are the most vulnerable, the most under-resourced. And it's legislative decisions that create margin space. Let me say that again. It's legislative conditions and decisions that create margin space. So vote. Vote your conscience, vote whatever you're going to vote, but vote vote just, vote right, Um, because it's not right. It is not right. It is not just. Uh, It is not mercy that children should die Mm -hmm. just because they're Black and they're poor, and they're immigrant, and they're in unclean social spaces and contexts daily because of their poverty because their parents don't have access to education or don't have access to resource or their communities are under-resourced and underserved. We have obesity and asthma in the margin space, not because everybody is fat and smokes cigarettes in the margin space, but because the highways that were built through the Bronx intensely cut through communities historically. That was a, a political decision that created margin space, which is why the Bronx has the highest asthma In all of the city. Our children are born in the Bronx breathing in the fumes of car exhaust. Right? So, if that's a legislative decision, who weeps for the city? Who cries for the city? Who mourns and who laments for the city? The church is called to be the conscience of the city. Yes. The ambassador to the kingdom of God speaking truth to power. And you look at the Old Testament, just a little just a little Bible study. If you look at the Old Testament, every king was the ambassador. Well, well, every prophet went before a king. That king, if we look at Moses, we look at, you know, there's always a prophet or judge somebody going before the king. When the king or the prophet goes before the king in symbol, that king represents a legislature, represents system, represents political power, represents, right? The church has never not been called, never not been called to confront sociopolitical issues. The Bible from its beginning is teaching us a prophet is sent. Moses is having an experience. I've heard the lament to the day of 450 years. I've heard the lament to my people Israel go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my people go worship. Let my people go worship. Moses said, wait a minute. <laughs> but he sent to the political power of the world at the time. And so, why am I saying that? Our entire ministry has been based on serving the least, the last, and the lost. Everything that we've done has been to that end. Um, COVID has put a remix into how we do that because of social distancing. We've had to rethink our ministry. We've had to rethink our pantries. We have more people that we serve that are undocumented in our church, and our church is about 700 people. We have more people that we serve undocumented on our weekends when we serve love on the streets and the promise center than we have in our whole congregation, bro. Did you hear know what I just said? Wow. We're servicing more poor people. If I would have a number on the poor people we're feeding, it'd be probably double the size, if not triple, of the people who we call members of our church. Mm-hmm. That is evidence that demands a verdict of mercy and justice and advocacy and the gospel to be preached to those in the margin space. So I get passionate about it. I love my job at City & City. Why you ask? Since you asked me, I'm gonna tell you why. I love it because I get to empower churches and I get to tell churches, how are you becoming incarnational within your community and your context? How are you being prophetic? How are you being biblical? How are you being advocates? How are you being prophets? And when I look at Sierra, and Pete, I saw all of those elements over the weekend, right? I saw all of those elements over the weekend. I saw the prophetic. I saw the advocacy. I, I saw the I saw the evangelization. As many churches were under the banner of liberty, as she was preaching the gospel and preaching to majority culture, I am white. And I'm going to tell you what's happening is wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She used her white skin to speak for those who had no voice. She says, I'm using my white privilege to preach the gospel. Yes. Because black people are dying. And God is not pleased with that.
0: Yeah.
1: It moves me. I see the, the Pray March Act movement that's happening. Your churches are involved. Our churches, I've been to, I've, I speak in almost all of them. Uh, I can't attend all of them, but, then, you know, but, but there's such a need. And... Um, we have to address the systemic, the historical histem- systemic uh, legislature that has been one-sided in this country, mm. which is why churches will not stop protesting. And these protests feel different, Paul. I've protested. I am a. I am a. I am an activist. I am an activist. It's not the first time I've been in a protest. I've been <clears throat> arrested several times for civil disobedience. To God be the glory. Um, before you judge me, Paul was arrested, Jesus was arrested, every major prophet that was about something was arrested. So, arrested, you know, so ultimately, you know, there's something different, there's something, there's a different feel, the connection, the community, the diversity. I see so many majority culture churches coming out to stand, coming out, uh, not just holding signs, but then after the march, strategizing and meeting, and educating themselves on this issue. Even what you're doing right now is so powerful because the march is great, but this is how you change the world, Paul. This is how you change the church. This is how the church is reformed and repents and is renewed and steps into a deeper level with God. It's in conversations like these and exposure as you deal with the tensions of agree, disagree from either majority or margin perspective, right? But when the church is willing to talk about the socio-intentional, oppressive, systemic issues that affect the margin space, then it's being the church. Then it's being Jesus. Well, how do I know that? Jesus doesn't incarnate in the middle of Rome. Jesus incarnates in first century Nazareth. He is already an immigrant in DACA. He's already a dreamer because he incarnates in oppressed In occupied territory Under Roman pagan rule By the time we get to Luke 4 He says today Why did I I'm paraphrasing uh, 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 Today you see this fulfilled Captives will be set free Bonds will be lifted Many people exegete that and say He's speaking about a spiritual Freedom of captivities No Who was in the room in the text Paul What was oppressing Israel And Jerusalem at the time He's referencing the now and that's to come, the spiritual and the physical realm. Captives should be set free. Slaves should not stay slaves but fight freedom in Christ. The margins should have access to the king, the way those who are situated in the center have access to the king. There's a tale of two two cities, but then there's also a tale of two churches. If you got two cities, Paul, you got two churches. God is calling us to be one holy Catholic church. And I see the center church. I see the white dominant evangelical church moving toward the margin. And I see the margin church, Paul, moving toward the. That's what's happening in these protests, these prayerful protests. The center and the margins are coming together to be one holy Catholic church under God. Praise be to God. Because we can't orchestrate that and we can't fabricate that. That's got to be a God thing. And what brings us together? The lament. I can't breathe. Mm. Mama, I can't breathe. How dare we preach Jesus on a Sunday after George Floyd and then not say George, as preach Jesus and not say the name of George Floyd in the pulpit. How dare we? How could we not say Breonna Taylor. In her house. Trayvon Martin. Skittles in his pocket. Skittles. Sandra Bland. On the way to a new job, just passing through. Eric Gardner. Cigarettes. You know, the great theologian, the father of Black Liberation Theology, Dr. James Cone, I was able to meet him and sit in a few of his lectures in his last days at Union Theological, Um, at a conference at the ECC. He wrote a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And he makes a profound statement. He says, majority culture no longer lynches black men. There wasn't any profit in that. He now takes black men and throws him in jail and makes money from it because there's a profit in that. That's marginalization. And we have allowed, the church has allowed in neutrality and silence for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of black men to go into jail for generations, for menial crimes that would not be applied the same to majority culture. God, has, God allowed sickness to retract us from our everyday church life to rebuild altars in our home, to then release us in this in a, in a time like this for healing. I truly believe that. I truly believe that Paul. That he allowed pestilence to come, to reform and to recalibrate us mm. for such a time as this.
0: The um, word I've been getting the last week as I was praying for. Our church and uh I shared it with our staff in in recent days um, is reformation and of course hi- historically that word has been used for a period of history when the Protestant church movement was born and but the word reformation is pow- powerful, and I actually you know I hadn't really studied it until this last several days this idea and I, I really believe it's what's happening in our church you know which is one of you know my responsibilities to steward but also i think it's it's what i perceive happening in in the church right now is literally a, a a reforming of the you know the the essence substance the vision our theology uh sure. you know it's unchanging through the centuries but but the the form that the church has taken the posture that the church has taken um its place, the way that it conceives of itself. It's almost like, you know, clay on the potter's wheel and the and it's the right. potter says, this mashes it all back down and says, let's try that again. Yeah. And I feel there's a, and it's very, it's disorienting. It's confusing. I, I feel it in different areas and you know, the things that you're speaking to as we've, stood together and wrestled together and marched together and (laughs) prayed together and (laughs) all of the above and and much to be done. It's a side of me, honestly, and I do not like to admit this, but some days, you know, and I'm sure you must feel the same, maybe for different reasons and from a different viewpoint, but some days I'm I'm tired. Some days I'm discouraged. Some days I'm disoriented, um, but digging down for the strength um, to lead and to stand, and having done all, still stand,
1: stand, brother. You know,
0: <laughs> and forgetting yeah. what's behind. You know, Paul talks about that, and that's right. forward, you know, and um, yeah, uh, I think uh this idea that the church is being reformed right now—that picture that you gave of the church, the church, one one church, not a tale of two churches, but one that's church
1: right. coming together.
0: together and standing together and. Reaching toward each other, this idea that Jesus entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation and what, is that? what does yes. that mean? And I don't really know what my question is, except, um,
1: well, maybe is this. yeah, <laughs>
0: we're processing.
1: You're doing theology in time, no, you're doing theology in real time. That's what yes. you do.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, and it's a very unique thing to do that while leading people to be processing yeah. grief and pain. To be learning, frankly, yeah. uh, while doing this, um, and uh, and it's a unique thing. What what people, you know, it is. It's a it's a privilege. It's a responsibility, though, to lead in times like these as well. To be prayerful, Absolutely. to be humble, to be repentant. Absolutely, uh, it's it's a lot. And I guess I guess my question, and you know, and it's probably part of my intent, my posture in having these conversations for change is how do how do we ensure because how do we ensure that, the, that this isn't just like a news cycle moment? You know, when I think about George Floyd, when I think about protests, when I think about even the church, there's a temptation for pastors. And maybe it's, as you say, center church, majority culture type churches that feel this way the most. But you know what? My cry has been, I don't want to get back to quote unquote normal, actually. Yeah. Like, I think God has more for yeah. us. And yeah. I, I think if we'll allow it, this moment and the pain of this, these moments and different, this, this moment is many things colliding. And I think that's what makes it so profoundly important for yeah. the church. But how do we, how do we make sure that, that we don't just allow this moment, moment to move and then the new cycle moves on and it's something else. And, and and we miss,
1: we miss it. Yeah. So how, how we avoid doing that is by doing what you're doing right now. You're processing not in a shell or in a bubble you're processing and you're processing out loud right with an other right in front of your people right and when you do community education because that's community education when you do group education like that you are cementing the concern for then you for it to now grow and to And you start to process it just like you did and questions and derive questions and answer questions. If you stay in a moment of observation and analyzing your ministry, true reformation is owning what you have and saying it doesn't work and saying, Lord, put me back on the wheel and reshape me because you're the potter and I'm the clay. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, I have felt the same exact way. Everything you said I have felt. I missed the pulpit. But the reality is, God has shown me that this screen is a pulpit. This microphone, <laughs> it's a different microphone than what I have in the church. This is the pulpit. He does, I didn't need that one. I thought I needed that one. He said, no, no, you need is me. And wherever I put you, I can use you for my glory. I want you to sit here, see this, study this, process this, and then I'll do something about this. As long as that's on the forefront of your conversation, you said some key things, posture of humility, posture of learning. We never stop learning, Paul. And the moment we embrace a theology that says we've got it all together, we become arrogant and we start to regress and we're no longer sensitive to the, to the, to the pulls of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of reconciliation that's reflected in the book of Romans challenges us to continue to reconcile a broken world to to Christ. And to reconcile a broken world is to engage the world's brokenness, not just for the people that look like us, but for the people that are far from us economically and culture and race and in class, right? And so the Ministry of Reconciliation by definition is to go into uncomfortable disorienting space to seek life. In a dead situation. We can never ever forget this. And we too often do because we get too smart. We serve a God of resurrection. Mm. And even now, my hand stands up. I believe God is resurrecting his church now through this disorientation. Mm. For such a time as this. Because mm. it has it has taken, it has wiped out everything that we knew. We all have to learn together. This is all we're back at ground zero. And now what's built now, we're accountable for. Because the myth, the myths of the United States of America, the myths, the tearing down of all these icons and statues, some people say that's our history. That's a majority history. That is an oppressive history. Those things are being toppled. Things that have been established, principalities and powers that have been established are now being pulled down. That's what's happening. That is disorienting. War is disorientation as you take more ground. And I think, you know, we have this obscure text of the kingdom of God suffer violence and the violent taken by force. You doing things like this is taking it by force because you're forcing yourself to turn around and process what you've not experienced. You are causing your heart to be touched by the Holy Spirit, to feel for somebody you've never met from a different economic reality, but seek first to understand them as Imago Dei. You see, the minute they become human, the minute I become human to you, I'm not an other, I'm you. The minute you see me as a human, you give me the dignity of that. There is no difference, Paul. Paul, you're from Australia and I'm from the Caribbean. We got the same father. Because if I cut you over there and you cut me over here, the same color's gonna come out. It's not gonna it, we're the same, brother, Imago Day. And I think that for such a time as this, I don't have the answer to anything. I know that I'm learning answers as I'm asking questions. The key is to keep asking questions, Paul. And teach your church and your leaders to keep asking questions. Why? That's the key. That's the key, in my opinion. Ask the questions. Keep asking. And then do something when you get the answer. March prayerfully, respectfully, prophetically, biblically, and powerfully. Mm-hmm. For such a time as this, we are the church. This didn't come after us, Paul, or before us. It came. This is a historic moment for us. Yes. This is our Reformation. This is the new Reformation. It really is. I believe
0: that well I'm grateful for you in my life I'm grateful for you uh, you. taking the time really uh, some profound things for me to think on out of our conversation today and I'm sure I'll get the same feedback from others I I wonder if you could maybe take a moment and uh, close us bless us um, in prayer and we'll we'll wrap out this conversation. But I just I just want to again just say thank thank you thank you for your life thank you for your leadership thank you for your longevity. You know you've, you've you you stand you continue to stand. I want to be uh, one of those in your life who's uh, lifting up your hands and uh, and uh, here to stay here to learn um, and uh, and I, and I'm grateful for you. So I, I would uh, I would greatly appreciate your prayer. Thank you
1: thank you Paul and likewise man. I- I appreciate your heart. I appreciate your heart. And uh, you're putting yourself out there to lead this conversation. And uh, everybody's not doing what you're doing. And uh, I appreciate that. As a person of color, as a voice in the city, as a leader in the city, I acknowledge the prices that you've paid. I acknowledge that uh, you don't have to do this. But you are listening to not your voice, but the voice of of your father. And I appreciate that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for my brother and his wife. I thank you for the Liberty Church pastors, the call of every pastor that's under uh, Bishop Paul, Lord God, that you bless them that you give them, God, a thirst to see your hands, O God, on their church, in their communities, among their people. And Father, that they would be used and spent in Mm. serving the least, the last, and the lost, God. Father, that this not be a moment, but a movement for your glory as you reshape and reform liberty as a gospel movement in the city. I pray for new wine and new wineskin. I pray for a new anointing. I pray for fresh preaching and teaching, pedagogical, revelational God that transforms not just the leaders, but even the pews, O oh God. I pray, Lord, for something so different, so of such magnitude that nobody can ever take the glory for it or claim it, but they see God has done something with Liberty Church across the city. I pray, Lord, that you shake up this church, reshape it, set it on fire, God, and put it in the darkest places. Let them be pregnant with church after church that's being planted in the most vulnerable communities, Lord. <laughs> and I thank you, God. Mm-hmm. I thank you for the good work that you've begun in this man of God. I thank you, Lord, that you provide for them. Let them need nothing. And Father God, all that they think they've lost, give it to them double, God, as they find themselves serving you in the vineyard of New York City. Mm -hmm. Bless them, keep them, anoint them, God, transform them for your glory and for this time. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord.